Hi, I'm Bill Gaither, and welcome to More Than the Music, a podcast where you can join me for conversations with some of the most interesting people I know. Each episode features a special guest who has inspired me in some way during my 50 years in the music industry. You'll meet incredible artists, writers, and comedians, sports figures, and other folks I'm grateful to call my friends. Join me now for this week's episode of More Than the Music. It's going to be good. Today, uh, uh, it's a joy for me to talk to a good, longtime friend of mine. And uh, when you read down his achievements, things like he appeared in 11 games of the World Series, ranking him 10th place on the all-time World Series appearance list. He had a total of 122 wins, 78 losses, and uh, pitched in five World Series with the Brooklyn Dodgers, two wins, two losses. Pitched two no-hit, no-run games, Chicago Cubs in 1952 and the New York Giants in 1956. Led the National League with 20 wins and six losses in 1953 held the World Series single-game strikeout record of 14 against your dear friends, the New York Yankees, in 1953. I could go on and on on that list. That's always embarrassing to me, and I know you, and I know your humility, I'm sure. When, when I read all of those things off, you probably think of Carl as a husband of Betty uh, for how many years now? Almost 73, yeah. October be 73. 73 years. We met in high school, and uh, one of her teachers, when she saw Betty walking the halls with me, holding hands, she was 14 years old. I was 15. <laughs> and her homeroom teacher told her, you stay away from that black-headed boy. <laughs> Mrs. Lashbrook, I'd like to find her and tell her that we made it 70, almost 73 years now. So. You know, that's quite a story. Growing up in central Indiana, not, not a small town, but, uh, but uh, uh, a long ways from New York City and L.A., and... Uh, Loving sports. In school, you played both basketball and baseball, right? I did. I tried to play football, and I wasn't very big, uh, 150 pounds or so. So the coach grabbed me by the collar one day at football practice, and he said, Son, come here. We're not going to let you get hurt in football, so you're not going to play football. You're going to run cross country. I didn't know what cross country was, until I found out it was three miles to run, nobody chasing you. <laughs> you just had to run. <laughs> that wasn't any fun. But that's what I did. I played baseball, basketball, and ran cross country, which was a requirement not to have an idle uh, space in your training years. So the athletes, they, they tried to keep busy in all sports. I'm not sure that's still the way it's handled today, but... Uh, Cross country helped develop my legs, which is really important in pitching. Yeah. And I did a lot of uh, running and sprints 
for conditioning uh, in my 14 years in the Dodger chain. So um, it was a good thing that didn't look so good at the beginning. <laughs> I never won a race. I, fin I think I finished probably sixth or seventh, uh, most of my uh -huh. best finish. Uh, but I always finished. I was always proud of the fact that a lot of guys dropped out with pains in their uh, side or breathing or something. And I always gutted it out and, and finished. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting. Uh, at this stage of, of our lives, <clears throat> I, uh, my son gave me a Fitbit. And if I can get in, you know, a few thousand steps a day, I think I'm doing well. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so each age has its challenge, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I, I, I've got a couple of gals in my family that carry those gauges around, and they're always talking about, uh, I get 10,000 10, today, yeah. and that's their goal. <laughs> <laughs> and I never, I never tried that, but uh, I've been on my feet a lot in yeah. my lifetime. Yeah. You know, one of the uh, uh, joys of, of doing sports or doing music, because you and I have shared this, are, are, are the wonderful, outstanding characters that you meet along the way. I think your first one was probably in high school, and anybody in this state knows the name of Jumpin' Johnny <laughs> Wilson. Uh, oh, one of the first black athletes, at least in our state, to, 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 to make a, a big impression, right? Johnny, of course, was Mr. Basketball in 1946. <laughs> Um, 1946, then he uh, wanted to go, and the coach, Charlie Cummings, uh, wanted to try to get all of us going to college. Uh, I had to go in the military and the Navy right out of high school, so I didn't get to take the opportunity at that time. But Johnny uh, would have certainly been a star in, in college in the Big Ten. But in 1946... They had no black athletes in the Big Ten. Now, there was no written rule that you couldn't do it, but the, the status quo in those days, if you were black, there were certain places you didn't go, you couldn't go. Now, Johnny and I grew up together from, uh, I think, about the fourth grade. So we were 10 or 11 years old when we met, walked to school, and didn't live about a block and a half apart. But uh, the coach at Indiana at that time said, uh, they asked him, are you going to take this uh, great basketball player that's j just demonstrated what he could do by helping to win the state? And uh, I think he scored 30 points in that uh, final game. In those days, uh, they had a different way of running the clock and so on. Scores were not too high, but Johnny would score 25 or 30 uh, every game. So Branch McCracken, who was a coach at uh, Indiana University, when asked, are you going to take this, uh, this great boy that's from Anderson? And Branch McCracken, with a straight face, said, I don't think he could make our team. Mm -hmm. That wasn't anything but uh, a blackout, you might call it. Mm -hmm. If you're a black, you're out. Mm -hmm. And so he couldn't go to Ohio State or Purdue or anywhere in the Big Ten. So Johnny did what uh, he was uh, able to do. The coach at Anderson University, a small Christian college in Anderson, Indiana, uh, the coach was smart enough to see that 
Johnny was had had the door shut on the Big Ten, but he could take him if he would be willing to come. Johnny went to Anderson University, became an All-American, uh, played four season, lettered four times, and uh, graduated. Now I have to admit something that I don't often do. Uh, Johnny Wilson and I made every team that we ever went out for. Neither one of us ever made the honor roll. <laughs> we were average students, and Johnny uh, had to have a little help along the way. Uh, he was a, came from a family with no father. Uh, his father died, I think, when Johnny was about 12. Yeah. But uh, Coach Charlie Cummings became actually his father. He, and Johnny was scared to death that this coach who came from Missouri would not have anything to do with him because he was black. Mm. It turned out that Charlie Cummings was smart in lots of ways. He knew Johnny could be a superstar in high school, which he was. Uh, I always remember Mr. Cummings said to uh, Johnny one day, uh, what are you and your family going to have for uh, Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner? And Johnny said, well, Mama finds a pot of beans or something. So he went back home and told his wife, Gladys, uh, or asked her, what are you fixing for uh, Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, she said, we're going to have a turkey. We're going to the whole nine yards. And he said, well, you fix it. We're going to take it down to the Wilson family. <laughs> so he did. So Mr. Wilson, uh, Johnny Wilson uh, had to look to Charlie Cummings for the father figure that he didn't have. Johnny never cussed. He never drank. Uh, I played a lot of golf with Johnny. And the one thing golfers do, amateurs, they hit the second shot because they didn't like the first one. <laughs> Johnny would never, if he dubbed it off the tee and it dribbled out about 10 yards, play it. he would not hit another shot. Yeah. I never heard him say a cuss word. Uh, now, he wasn't, he wasn't mamby-pamby. I don't mean that. Yeah. He was uh, committed to do the right thing, and that's what he did. And um, so I always admired Johnny because he came from so uh, obscure uh, home setting. And uh, we'd go to the, uh, Saturday morning. There was always cowboy shows at the theater. If you could scrape up a dime, uh, you could get in. Then you'd let the other guy in through oh. the side door. <laughs> but we, we'd go to these um, movies, and Johnny could not sit on the main floor. Blacks were not permitted. So I'd sit in the, in the balcony with Johnny. With, yeah. Isn't that something? Well, that was back in the 40s, and America was truly split uh, black and white. But Johnny and I never saw each other that way. <laughs> we were good buddies. Uh, grew up together, and uh, Johnny went on from his uh, graduation to uh, be play with the Globetrotters, and then he played in the Chicago American Giants, was in the Negro Baseball League, and Johnny was an outstanding baseball player, but they wouldn't let him play baseball in high school because he was too good in track. <laughs> they wouldn't let him do two sports. It was quite a history to look back on Johnny's uh, relationship with me because a few years after high school and got out of the Navy, uh, I signed into pro baseball. 
And lo and behold, Jackie Robinson came into my into my life. The timing, the timing is amazing. It, it, it's just like I was being prepared for the uh, classic. I've often said it was one of the greatest changes in American culture um, for John for uh, Jackie Robinson to break the barrier. Uh, of no blacks in the major leagues or any professional league. So that was a just a kind of a bonding thing with with Jackie Robinson because I'd had such a close relationship with Johnny Wilson. With Johnny Wilson, yeah. It, it just was like I was destined to meet J uh, Jackie because uh, I'd been kind of been prepared. People today cannot imagine what it was like in 1940s uh, Bill, you were pretty young back in the 1940s. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and people today, it's awful hard to explain to them that we had two cultures, and it was standard. Everybody accepted it. If you're black, you don't go there. And if you're white, this is your place. Uh, and it was unbelievable how we, in America, uh, we could come to the point where we, we called a... Uh, if you had a black face, uh, you didn't belong in certain places. Uh, we've lived through that. Uh, we also used to do that to the handicapped. Uh, handicapped uh, kids that grew up were uh, usually withdrawn. Their families were withdrawn from the mainstream. Uh, and so uh, what, what happened when Jackie broke the barrier? People began to say, why would we deny this? Great athlete, my gosh, he's exciting to watch. Why would we, why would we deny him? Plus, he was just a wonderful human being. The same thing oh. was true, 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 true with Johnny Wilson. I think that's one of the beautiful things about sports, and I think it's it's also true in music too. At that point, if you're in a band. You just want somebody who can play the notes and have a good time in doing it, and you want the person who can play the notes the best way and can sing them the best way. I think the same thing is true in sports. You want to win, right? Would be, and yes, so it would. so who is the best qualified, you know, to help you win? And 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 what a wonderful opportunity for a kid coming out of the Midwest to uh, to help bridge this gap that never should have been there in the first place. You know, I never forget. I never ever forget that I was a skinny kid in the west side of Anderson. I got plucked right out of that situation into pro baseball, and then traveled the world and made such a fantastic experience to uh, play in the major leagues for both Brooklyn ten years and then L.A. for a couple of years. And some of the great people that I played with. One of the greatest people was another black player was Roy Campanella. Oh, yeah. He was my catcher. <laughs> and I pitched 1,500 innings or something like that to Roy Campanella. Yeah. And all those stats you just read, uh, Campanella caught me in all those. And he was a beautiful person. He loved the Lord, uh, and he, uh, he enjoyed life. He had, you know the word joy uh, I don't think it's uh, interpreted deep enough. Uh, a lot of people have fun, but Campanella had joy in his life. <laughs> he just, every day he was so glad to be playing. And uh, 
he wouldn't care if you played two games. And he often said in the Negro League, we used to play three games on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? And you mentioned the word uh, joy, and I think that's a very, very important word. It seems like first generations of whatever, whether or not you, you are an immigrant from um, Europe or, or, or anywhere else, the first generation seems to understand joy. And in Roy's situation, maybe the first generation of, of a black family to go beyond the borders of what their family had done before. I think one of the most difficult things is to pass that joy on to the next generation. Sometimes it happens. Yeah, it and so, does. And, and sometimes the, the, the second gen- generation understands it. It might be more difficult for the third generation. Yeah. Well, you know, your environment has a lot to do with... Uh, with how you uh, see things and understand things. Uh, that's why it's so important to go to the right environment. Now, Branch Rickey was my boss. Uh, he owned the team. He signed me about the same time he signed Jackie. Then I did my Navy thing, and uh, in 1946, I got out, and Mr. Rickey signed me to my first contract. Mr. Rickey was raised by a strong Christian mother. And he often talked about his mother and the promise that he made to his mother that he would not abandon his faith when he went into this rough shod business of pro baseball, which in the early years must have been a rough shod. Uh, they often said that the old towns wished to have a sign in the window of the restaurant, no dogs or ball players allowed. <laughs> <laughs> but Mr. Ricky kept his promise, and he often mentioned his mother. Ironically, Jackie Robinson was raised in Cairo, Georgia, a sharecropper's kid. Uh, His mother was a strong Christian, and he was raised with the principles uh, that Christ taught. And the bonding between Mr. Ricky and Jackie was the faith that their mother sent them out with. And nobody ever wrote about that. Sports Illustrated or any of the magazines that talk about Jackie's courage, Jackie's skills, and uh, and all he did historically. But they never centered on what was the bonding between Mr. Ricky. How did he pick that one player out of all these great black athletes? And uh, But the bonding was there that has now been written about by a, a, a writer named Ed Henry. Ed Henry is a co- anchor on uh, the national, uh, uh, one of the national networks. Uh, he came and visited me to get some words about my experience with Jackie. But here's the point. Uh, it's never been written about until Ed Henry wrote this book that the bonding between Mr. Ricky and Jackie was the extension of the faith of their, their, both their mothers. And when Mr. Ricky asked Jackie, you're the strongest guy on the field, you can whip anybody in a fight, are you strong enough not to fight? <laughs> then he pulled from his desk drawer a book called Papini's Life of Christ. And in it, he read a parable of Turn the Other Cheek. No fight back, no resistance, uh, a peaceful response. Now, Jackie played 10 seasons in the major leagues. 
I never, ever saw him fight, want to fight, look like he was going to fight. In a parking lot, in, in a restaurant, Jackie never, ever fought. So what was Jackie's greatest skill? His self-control. He would have spoiled the whole thing had he resisted and fought back. He didn't do it. It's not recorded anywhere uh, by voice, by print, that Jackie ever fought. How could he do that? I knew Jackie. He was militant. He was, <laughs> And Mr. Ricky said, that's what I got to have. I got to have somebody that wants to bust you in the face, but he's got to control it. That's the way he skilled Jackie Robinson to face segregation. And Jackie did it. He never fought back. He never resisted. But he wanted to badly. And his wife, Rachel, could tell you, after the game, and he came home to their a house in uh, north of, in, of uh, New York, he'd go out in the yard and he'd, he'd beat golf balls. He'd do anything just to get this... The tension Just out of get him. it out of him. <laughs> and uh, so I admire Jackie not only for the great skills he had. He was, uh, he was intelligent. Uh, he, he had a very clean English. Uh, he, he'd gone to UCLA, actually. And I, I don't think he ever graduated, but he was a four-letter man at UCLA. Uh, it's interesting that... Baseball was an open door for Jackie where the whole culture of the times was not. So Major League Baseball or professional baseball did that first step to get Jackie on the, on the road to showing people why he deserved to be a Major League player. And people bought it quickly. And he was voted Rookie of the Year his first year. <laughs> Amazing, but he couldn't stay in the hotels with us. It was he win the game, we'd all go back to a big hotel in Chicago or Philly or someplace, yeah. and Jackie would go to a private home somewhere. Uh, that lasted two or three years while he was in the major leagues. Amazing, and uh, finally it took it took eight years, maybe seven years, I think, before all the hotels in the National League would accept black guests. Uh, the last one was uh, Park Ho uh, Park Hotel in uh, St. Louis, and um, Lena Horne was a, a lead singer in their show at, <laughs> at night, and she had to enter the hotel through the kitchen. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, back to Jackie uh, not not responding in anger, when, or at least not responding in physical force. Uh, theologians would say that's what Christ meant when he said, blessed are the meek. He didn't say weak. Yeah. He said, blessed are the meek. And the theologians would interpret that as saying this is strength under control. And you mentioned uh, right. Mr. Ricky was excited by the fact he was tough enough to take on anybody. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but he controlled it. I've been with you. Gloria and I have been with you and Betty several times, and we always enjoy hearing um, the stories about some of these people. You had a couple stories uh, that I remember correctly when you went in one time to, uh, 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 or maybe it was Tommy, Las Tommy Lasorda that went in to Branch Rickey, and what did a raise? Is, is, oh, well, uh, yeah, uh, right. Uh, am I rem rem remembering that correctly? You, you are. Uh, 
Mr. Ricky uh, was a father figure to a lot of us because yeah. we were we were in our early twenties, most of the team, uh, after World War II in the rebuilding process. Anyway, uh, we were in the minor leagues and rode those tough buses and uh, and flea bag hotels. And um, so Tommy uh, and Mr. Ricky was known for being so tight with the budget and with the raises. <laughs> so it's hard to get any raises. Yeah. So Tommy Lasorda was a young pitcher in the minors. I played with Tommy. And he said he went in to talk to Mr. Ricky about his contract. And they uh, finally agreed on some meager sum uh, for his next season. And then Mr. Ricky said, now, uh, son, uh, it's not good for players to know what each other makes, so <laughs> why don't we just shake hands and say that we won't say anything about uh, what salary you're making. And Tommy says, uh, Mr. Ricky, in all, all due respect, uh, you don't have to worry about me saying anything about my uh, contract. I'm just as ashamed of it as you are. <laughs> Is that a great story? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it was partly true. Yeah. <laughs> it, Mr. Ricky was tight, but what he gave us was more than a pay envelope. Uh, he, he didn't preach to us. Now, you got to remember this. We had a big system in the Dodger organization, 20, 26 farm teams. In other words... Mr. Ricky got the tag uh, that he developed the farm system. He grew the players, and, and he had a market to sell them or to keep the best or whatever. And he always said, I'm raising ballplayers that's going to come back to beat me in the, in the big leagues. <laughs> and he did. He, ra he got so many guys. I think there was almost 800 players under contract with the Dodgers in these 26 farm teams. And... Um, so it took you. There were two hundred of them were pitchers. Yeah. I didn't know that when I signed, but you had to beat out two hundred other hard-throwing guys. And uh, Mr. Ricky liked one thing about a player. He says anybody can find the talents. You can go to a ball game. Everybody in the stands can see who the superstar is on the team. But I want not only the raw material. I want the player who has the aptitude to refine his rough skills, that he can, he can embellish it, he can learn things uh, beyond his just uh, raw talent. Because some guys could throw hard, but they never learned how to finesse in pitching. And Mr. Ricky loved to find a young player who had lots of velocity, but also could learn how to take something off the speed can, can finesse the hitter, can have a, an array of pitches instead of just a hard-throwing fastball. And a few guys never learn beyond being a rough. I bet this applies to music as well. Uh, somebody who can embellish, can refine their talent instead of just always being a raw talent. Now, fortunately, the good Lord helped me to learn fast. And when they showed me something, I got it quickly. So I leapfrogged that 200 pitchers, and I went to the big leagues in a, a year and a half. Normally, it's a five, six, eight, ten-year experience in the minors to make your way through all that competition. <laughs> but because the Lord gave me the ability to learn quickly, uh, and Mr. Ricky moved me up fast. 
And so I was in the big leagues after I signed. In 46, um, I was in the big leagues by 48. That's amazing. That's amazing. Another name I've heard you talk about who had a big influence on you uh, was Norman Vincent Peale. <laughs> yes. uh, the, uh, the pastor, where did, he, where did he pastor? He was in a church in Long Island, in uh, Manhattan. Um, Marble Collegiate was called. That's right. And uh, it was a Dutch Reformed church. Right. And that church building was 100 years old while I was playing in New York. Mm -hmm. And I went to the church often. Betty and I went to the evening services many times. But they had a, a celebration when the 100th year of that building. But there had been two other buildings going clear back to the 1600s on that site. So that was the third building, and it was 100 years old itself. So lots of history. But ironically, Mr. Rickey and Dr. Peel had graduated from Ohio Wesleyan, not at the same time, because mm -hmm. Mr. Rickey was older. Mm -hmm. But they, they were close friends, and that's how I met Dr. Peel, through my boss, Branch Rickey. <laughs> you know, I heard Donnie Wash, who was the uh, uh, manager of the Indiana Pacers for many, many years, and he made this statement on ball players. He said, uh, talent will always seduce you as, as, as a manager. I mean, talent will always get your attention. He said, uh, a character will, uh, or a lack of character will always bite you in the fanny, he said, <laughs> as, a, as a manager. Oh. That is so true. Uh, I, I think it's also true in, in you know, in music. Uh, you look at a talent who, you know, can do all different kinds of things vocally, but maybe from a character issue, he's late, you know, you know, they make a big deal in sports about being there when the bus leaves. I don't care if, and, um, you know, Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, just uh, uh, died recently. And uh, there were a lot of people who talked about his, him being punctual and, and showing up on the gym, you know, for workouts and all. To me, that is all character issues. Now, also, you can go even much further than that. But <clears throat> some things you can teach, and, and I think you can also teach character too, but uh, some, that has to be innate, doesn't it? The responsibility of, hey, it's not just me, but I've, I've got you know 10 to 20 to 30 or 40 other people here involved in what we're doing here, and, uh, and I'm responsible to them also. Right. Well, let me tell you what my street theology is. Okay. <laughs> if you want to be, um, if you want to be the best that you can be, you have to have discipline. The gospel teaches discipline. Sports teach discipline. Business teaches discipline, and. Discipline can be interpreted different ways, but the way I see discipline is that there's hardly anybody who's has a, a normal mind, at least, knows right from wrong. 
So knowing is only a part of being a good character. Doing is harder. Doing the things that make good character, you have to have discipline. You have to tell yourself. You know, there's an old story about the guy who goes in for a raise, and uh, his name was Johnson, and the boss said, well, Johnson, you know, uh, uh, we might give you a raise, but, you know, you're late for work, and you, and, uh, you leave early, and uh, you don't seem... He said, when you learn to boss Johnson, then I'll give you a position where you can boss other people. <laughs> good wisdom. <laughs> good a good, a, a good wisdom. More Than the Music is sponsored by the folks at the Game Show Network. You know, these days, it seems like every time you turn on the television, there's something that makes you want to shout back at the screen. Well, at the Game Show Network, that's the whole point, but in a good way. They're dedicated to creating family-friendly play-along and laugh-along games that will have the whole family getting in on the competition. Whether you're watching their classic games in the morning or their block of all the original shows from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. every weekday, it's a great way to bring everyone together in one place and on one screen. If you're looking for entertainment that the whole family can enjoy together, the answer is the Game Show Network. Let me give you another name. Yogi Berra. <laughs> well, you, one thing that name does it when you respond, you can't help but smile. Smile. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's ironic about that? I knew Yogi Berra very well. He was never a funny man. He never tried to be funny. Never tried to be funny. He never did. Yeah. And I see his whole life after baseball, he did tons of re interviews. And the guy interviewing him wanted him to be funny. And he and he he was kind of lost when the the guy interviewed him. Well, say something funny, Yogi. He never was that way. He, he, he just had this way of seeing things. Like, uh, I can't go. I got to go to this guy's funeral because if I don't go, he won't come to mine. I mean, Yogi just said things that came to him, and he never tried to. To crack wise or tell jokes or anything, he was in. Uh, I, I think it's in St. Louis one time, and it wasn't was not a very big crowd, right? And he made a comment about that. What what, what was that comment? Well, the guys looked in the stands when they came out on the field uh, to warm up, and they said, "Look at this stands; it's half empty. These people don't come. To, why don't they come to the ball game?" And Yogi said, "Well, if." If uh, so, if somebody want, doesn't want to come to the game, who's going to stop them? <laughs> but anyway, he had, he got credit for many lines I'm sure that weren't his. But but he did say some uh, interesting things. It's not over till it's over. And uh, uh, one of the one of the things he said: when you come to the fork in the road, take it. Well, the thought behind that is he lived on a street that divided around a uh, some kind of a maybe a floral arrangement or uh, trees or something but it came back together on the other side you could go either way and it would bring you back to the same so 
his his it had some logic, but but it sounded funny. Would you come to the fork in the road, take it? <laughs> but it made perfect sense to Yogi, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> now Yogi and I share something that's very unique. In 1953 World Series, my manager said, "Look, Yogi Berra is hitting left-handed, and he's trying to loft the ball over this short fence in right field." 297 down the right field line, but it was a high high screen. And he said, I want you to knock him down. First time up, I get a strike on Yogi, and then I want to see him flat. He's, he's dug in, so his back foot, you can't really see it. He's, he's dug in, so he ordered me to throw at Yogi, to knock him down, not hit him, but to knock him down. So I got a strike on Yogi, and I threw an inside pitch, hit him in the ribs, yeah. Well, he went to first base, which is, you know, that. So I went to the bench after the inning. He says, my manager says, it's the lousiest knockdown pitch I ever saw. <laughs> next time he comes up, do it right. So the next time Yogi came up, I got a strike on him, and I threw a high inside pitch. He should have gone down. He didn't. He just turned away, and it, the ball hit him in the back of his elbow. Yeah. So now he goes to first base again. Well, my, you know, it's hard to do something that's somebody else's idea. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I didn't have my heart in throwing at Yogi. But a writer told me after that game, Carl, do you know this? That's the first time in the history of baseball World Series that the same pitcher hit the same batter twice in the same game. <laughs> So, so Yogi and I must have a World Series record. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, you were in New York from what, 1948? 48, right. Until when? We, we moved to Los Angeles uh, after the 57 season. Yeah. So uh, we went to spring training in Vero Beach, where we've been all the time. Mm. So we still trained there, even though we played in Los Angeles. And uh, the... The shock to us was not so much spring training because it was in the same place we'd always been for years in Vero Beach, Dodger Town it was called. But then we boarded the Dodger uh, jet uh, to fly to California instead of playing our way north to start the season in New York. That's the first time it really hit us that we were no longer a Brooklyn Dodger uh, but we we're going to be an L.A. Dodger. And uh, I only had two years left in my career when we went to L.A. But opening day uh, was in the Coliseum because Dodger Stadium hadn't been built yet. So uh, Walt Alston, our manager, came to me and he said, Carl, uh, I want to start you in game one uh, at, uh, at the Coliseum. That surprised me because I hadn't had a very good spring and I had had lots of arm trouble, but I had a lot of experience. So I got to pitch the opener in Los Angeles. Uh, I pitched a scintillating 10 hitter and got the win. <laughs> but it was a rather sloppy game, and was, uh, but it was very historic. About 80,000 people showed up at the Coliseum. Mm. And uh, so it was a very historic day. And so I got to pitch the opener. I was... I only won a few games after that in Los Angeles. I finally retired with arm trouble. But um, Has the arm trouble been a continual thing uh, with you now as you've aged? 
Well, I hurt my shoulder early in my career, pitching in the rain in, uh, in New York. And uh, in those days, uh, they would never touch the, uh, the pitching arm uh, with surgery. It was just unheard of that you would go into a pitching arm with the, the scalpel. So the people that treated me, and uh, we did a lot of cortisone shots, and uh, I should go to the hospital to get them because uh, it was kind of a big operation. It wasn't an operation, but it was a kind of a big procedure that uh, he would go in with the needle deep <laughs> and fan it out around the area. Mm-hmm. It was. I never thought it helped me much, but uh, that was a treatment we had, and and I never wanted to be known as a, a sore arm pitcher. Uh, I'd pitch a lot of innings. Incidentally, I remember being in Doctor Peel's office during a time that I was stressed out a little bit with my shoulder, and uh, I went in to visit Doctor Peel in his office at Marble Collegiate Church. And before I left, he said, Carl, I've been reading a paper about your sore shoulder. Um, let's, let's talk a minute about that. So he came over to me, and he stood by my side, and he put his hand on my shoulder, the one that was uh, giving me trouble. And he said such a simple prayer that it was profound. He was talking to the Lord. He didn't know anybody else was in around him. He said, Lord, you made this shoulder of Carl's. He's used it the best he can, but he's, he's got a little trouble with it. Uh, I can't fix it. Uh, most of the doctors say they can't fix it. We know that. You can fix it. Will you please help Carl get through this? Now, here's the end of the story. You expect a miracle that the, the hurt was going to go away, okay? The hurt didn't go away. I pitched 11 seasons after that. The Lord showed me how to pitch with it instead through it, of through it, <laughs> through the taking pain. it away. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Because yeah. We, we think of the miracle. It was a miracle. Uh, hundreds of guys with injured arms have had to drop out of the game. I pitched, I pitched 10 or 11 seasons after, uh, after the, the prayer in his office. Okay, he said, well, that makes a good story, but you'd have probably done it anyway. No, no, no. I probably would have quit because I felt like I wasn't up to par. Well, anyway, that was my experience. Dr. Peel was a wonderful man because he could tell you about the Lord in such believable ways. Uh, And he didn't preach to you so much as he reminded you of things that you already had that you don't use maybe enough, and your mind is taking you places that uh, you don't have to go. But I mean, he was just magic. Now, there's a great story, uh, Bill. I don't want to take all the time here, but uh, he he came out of a college uh, at Ohio Wesleyan, and uh, the, pre- uh, the professor kept him after school class one day and said to him, Norman, I'm going to flunk you in this class because I ask you a question. You stand up, you look at the floor, you stutter, you stammer around. I know you know the answer, but if you don't shake yourself up and, and get with it, I'm going to flunk you. So Norman, Dr. Peel said, I went out on the steps of this big uh, building 
uh, at Ohio Wesleyan, and he said, I sat there uh, discouraged, and I finally said to the Lord, Lord, can you please, please take this that's a inferior feeling I have, that this inferior complex I got. You can take a drunk out of the cutter and fix him. You can, you can take a, a sinner of the worst kind and straighten him out. Can't you please help me with this inferiority complex? Now, Dr. Peel went through school. He became a minister, and uh, he became a tremendous communicator, both by written books and by his yep. preaching. Mm -hmm. I heard him preach at the, in, uh, when he was 90 years old. He told that story about his inferiority complex. But he shocked the crowd by saying, I've never lost it. I still have that inferiority complex. But with the Lord in my life, it never became my master. <laughs> Isn't that something? He was powerful. He was powerful. So you come back to Anderson, and there's another important part of your story in, in Anderson. Uh, to know Carl and Betty uh, Erskine, you have to know them as, uh, uh, as people in, in, in a county where they grew up, friends that they've had for 50, 60, 70 years. You came back to raise your family, what, uh, four, four children, right? Right. Well, we had, when I finished baseball, I had three, uh, three kids, uh, Danny, Gary, and Susan. They were ages, uh, when I quit baseball, they were ages about uh, 12, 10, three or four. Yeah. And then uh, Betty was pregnant for our fourth child. And it was born at St. John's Hospital. And um, the whispers went through St. John's Hospital like a wildfire. The Erskine baby is mongoloid. That, that, that was a word back that then. That was the term for yeah. Down, Down, syndrome. Down syndrome. But that was a medical term for a uh, condition yeah. because of facial things or something. That, uh, it was mongolism. And the attitude at that stage was, uh, it was so unknown. I mean, it was, you know, it was such a mystery to people. It was, it was not only a mystery, it had a lot of taboos with it, uh, some superstitions and uh, un uninformed. And society, unfortunately at that time, caused people to withdraw families to withdraw from the mainstream because there were no schools, there were no uh, services at all for not just Down syndrome, but any child born with a defect of some kind. There was just none. People just withdrew from the mainstream. So Betty and I went through the same thing any parent might do. Why did this happen? What did we do wrong? What? Nothing in our family uh, we inherited. This just appeared suddenly. And the doctor said to uh, Betty in the hospital, now, your little guy, uh, Jimmy, uh, he can be well cared for in a good institution. And here was the key words. And you won't, if you take this little boy home, uh, 
we recommend that you, and no other services were available for the doctor to recommend. So put this little guy in a well-cared-for uh, institution, yeah. and it won't disrupt your family. That was the words. These were good doctors, no. I mean, he's, what they meant was there's no place for this child. There's nothing out there. And uh, Betty said to the doctors, who we knew quite well, they were friends, I'm taking this little guy home. I carried him nine months. He's going home with me. I went home that day, and I set my three kids down on the couch, and I said, um, you got a new little brother coming. Uh, he'll be home in a few days, and you're, he's not going to be fast like you have been. You've all learned to swim. You ride the bikes and do all that. You're going to have to help Jimmy. My kids were so great. That, that was the best speech I ever made. My kids accepted Jimmy. They brought their friends home. Uh, they were all athletes in some form or cheerleaders, my daughter. They were never embarrassed about Jimmy. And you know what? That, that reflected to the kids in the community. And they all embraced Jimmy as he was growing up. So I could tell you thousands of stories about Jimmy and how he's influenced our lives and how much of a blessing he is and instead of what seemed to be at the time almost a tragedy to have a, dis a, have a, a dis child. A disruptor of your life. Right, right. <laughs> no, he, he's added so much. And the amazing thing now, he was supposed to live to his mid-30s. In April 1st of this year, he'll be 60 years old. On March the 1st, he will have worked at Applebee's restaurants 20 years. <laughs> great, great story. And, uh, you know, and I could put a halo on your and Betty's head and you would not wear it very long at all. But you have been a wonderful model because, uh, as you said, in the early 60s, this was a, a taboo subject. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I think many times couples on anything, people, all of us on our journey say, why me? Uh, and Chris Offerson wrote the song, Why Me, Lord? You know, well, in some cases you say, uh, why not me? You know, uh, and, and, uh, and you don't know why these things come along, but it's, you know, you, you and Betty already been great models in so many ways, but, uh. Well, you know what happened, Bill, really? People say to Betty and me, oh, you've done a wonderful job with Jimmy. The truth is, where is mom and dad? And we would do that anyway. <laughs> the real difference is that the culture of our times have seen the turnaround till Jimmy is now, I wouldn't call him a celebrity, but he's so well-known and well-liked, and people like Jimmy are now seen to be uh, people to be embraced. And you know, the Downs person is, uh, is obvious with some of the facial features that uh, you can tell a Downs person. Uh, and there's all kind of range of uh, abilities uh, from uh, just nothing to contribute to, hey, a lot of Downs people can uh, graduate from college and uh, get married and do the normal things in life. 
but the lessons taught by uh, getting to know that population, uh, now Special Olympics has been a marvelous platform for people to see uh, special needs people perform. And it, it, it tugs at your heart in the fact that you see something that we ought to all know. You watch a special athlete on the end line of a race. There'll be five or six on the race. And when the race, the 25-yard uh, race is done, there's a winner, a second place, third place. But there's a last place. It comes in five minutes behind the field because they're struggling to get down the line. They get the biggest hand. Cheers. Isn't that something? And it tells you this, that it's, this is actually scriptural. The, the thing we're supposed to do is get the most out of what we've been given. We're not, we're not all alike. We're not gifted all alike. But we're supposed to take what we have and get the most out of it. And that's what Special Olympics shows. It shows people without uh, coordination, with, uh, without uh, muscle tone and all that, doing their darnest to make it work. And so the last place person is recognized for getting the most out of what they've been given. And they get the biggest hand in Special Olympics. So all those values are here all the time. We just have to, as Christ said, you know, you got to have eyes to see and ears to hear. But Special Olympics has uh, done like Jackie had did on his stage. He showed people he belonged, that he was gifted, and you can see a Special Olympic event, and you can actually feel the effort that's being put in by this runner or swimmer uh, in any sport that you watch. So Betty and I have uh, we've learned a lot about life by having Jimmy. Uh, we found a population that uh, used to be hidden, and in his lifetime, we've seen schools uh, have special ed programs. Just recently, the uh, IHSAA, which is for the athletics in high school, yeah, yeah. they have now done a dual. Uh, it, it's really a challenge program where a special needs person can now compete in track and field and some other sports uh, from high school because we now have special needs people graduating from high school. And uh, so Special Olympics has been a good platform, uh, just like Jackie had in baseball. Uh, it's interesting. It's both sports. Our son, Jimmy, he's been a swimmer. He's track and field. Uh, now he's bowling. He's, he, he's a good for for his uh, level, uh, he breaks a hundred once in a while. <laughs> he, his average is probably ninety something. He's going to be in a tournament this weekend called a Pro Am in Indianapolis. So uh, he leaves. Uh, this is Friday. Tomorrow morning he'll go to uh, Indianapolis and compete in a bowling tournament. So uh, Jimmy has just done what uh, I just described, getting the most out of what he had. We have a little awards room here in, in, uh, in our studio where we display, you know, stuff like uh, our uh, Grammys and uh, Dove Awards. But there is a, and some Indiana Awards. But there's one Indiana Award called the Sakem Award that I, from what I understood, and Mitch Daniels when he's a governor, 
uh, gave that uh, uh, to us uh, that has been given to very few people. And uh, when I looked at the list of people that, uh, to whom it, it had been given, uh, I had a little bit of pride, I'll be honest with you, because it was people like Father Hesburgh from Notre right. Dame. Right. And, uh, and I cannot tell you the joy we have when we're showing the people through. And we say we're very proud of this because few people in Indiana got it. And, uh, and, and four of them were from Madison County. And uh, that, uh, that award was given to you. And, and, and when they give it to you, they give it to Betty as far as right. I'm, I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. And to Gloria and me. So Gloria and I are very proud of our relationship. When we talk about <laughs> our friends in Madison County, we say, Carl and Betty Erskine, you're a little bit older than I, but uh, <laughs> uh, not that much. Not, uh, not that much. It's been a great county to come out of, hasn't it? A lot of cornfields, soybeans, a lot of basketball uh, hoops. Uh, out, out. In fact, Carl, I can still show you the basketball goal on our barn out in Scott's <laughs> Edition, where when I was a kid, I was pretending that I was a great basketball player. It was really tough because the goal was right up against the barn and the bottom part of the barn uh, cement blocks. So if you went driving in for a layup, <laughs> yeah. your chances of making it for the rest of the game uh, were pretty slim. Bill, Bill, did you ever read the book Acres of Diamonds? Yes, yes. And you know the the lesson in that is the guy was couldn't wait to sell his farm in South Africa. <laughs> a dirt farmer, he was poor, and he got his belongings and went to find a place where he could make his fortune. And that's where the diamond mines were found, right, in his dirt farm. <laughs> I think about that story, and I think of you and Gloria, or me in a way, uh, coming from a small town, uh, being very average in a lot of ways. But you've made your fortune sitting right here, right here in Littleburg of Alexandria, and uh, you, uh, Virgil Cook also comes to mind that he <laughs> he made a fortune staying right in this little town of Anderson. But you and Gloria have done more than make a fortune for yourself. Uh, you've spread the word in a way that is so real through music. Uh, I always ached a little bit that I didn't learn to read music. Uh, I always had an itch for music, and. Um, but you and Gloria have done what uh, uh, what the lesson was in Acres of Diamonds. Your fortune is right where you are. You're sitting on top of it. Uh, find it, and and you'll you'll be rich in lots of ways. Maybe not always in uh, in the money side, but I see people who are so uncomfortable in life. They just don't feel like they got to get away from where they are to find it. And often they walk right away from where they could find it. And um, the gospel tells you that over and over again, that you're made to be where you are in your time, uh, your place, and, uh, and there's where you ought to find it. So you've, you've not only made a good life for yourself and your family, but you put a standard on what music can do to bring the soul 
into the, your life in a way that you wake up in the morning, you want to first thing your lips want to say is thank you, Lord, for giving me what I have. I played with a catcher named Roy Campanella. Roy was a three-time MVP winner in the National League. I pitched maybe 1,500 innings in my career, 10 years pitching to Roy. When he was at the peak of his career, he had an auto accident, and he uh, became paralyzed with his neck down. He spent 33 years in a wheelchair, and he couldn't. He told me one time, the worst, Carly said, the worst thing for me, I wake up in the morning, I can't move. Somebody has to get me up and dress me and then put me in my wheelchair. But he had a motorized wheelchair, and he had just enough movement in one arm that he could operate that. And he said, this is, this is how I live in this chair. And what Roy did when he was paralyzed, I think he had more good influence in life than he did as a player. And that's hard to beat. He was one of, he's a Hall of Famer. But he used to go to the uh, hospital and speak to paraplegics and uh, to other places, nursing homes, and speak to people who were uh, in a wheelchair like he was. He never talked about what he lost. What he didn't have. He never talked he about that. He never talked about it. He would not taint his career as a professional athlete and a Hall of Fame catcher. He would not let that be tainted by dwelling on what he lost. So he'd always say to people, well, yeah, I lost a little bit, but look what I got left. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> I went to see Roy one time uh, at an old-timers game in Los Angeles, and we were in the Dodger clubhouse. And I walked over. I hadn't seen Roy for a long time. I walked over, and his shoes were shined. He was dressed real neat. He looked like a million dollars. And, I, and he's smiling. And I said, Roy, how you doing, buddy? Yeah, I Carl. He said, I'm okay. How about you? You just had hip surgery. I said, yeah. He said, how are you getting along? I said, well, I'm doing, I'm doing well getting around. And he said, how's Betty and how's Jimmy? And I said, well, you know what? Jimmy's in Special Olympics. And I told him Betty's good. good. He said, Carl, I think of you often. And I pray for you every day. <laughs> Man, that was the greatest example of what I say, the human spirit with the Holy Spirit. Powerful. Powerful. Carl, this has been great. Uh, I wish we had. The next time you come back, you have to bring your harmonica because... <laughs> And friends, not only does he play the harmonica, he really plays it quite well. When I, and when Buddy Green comes in and we hear them both play back home again in Indiana or T for two or whatever, it's, <laughs> it's always great. Carl, thanks for coming in, my friend. Bill, you've been a good, a good friend. You've, you've, you've done your success not only uh, getting credit for the music you've written, you and Gloria, uh, you've had a great influence in the little town of Alexandria. Uh, it's well known all over the world because of your music. And uh, that's a great 
legacy for you to have. It'll always be in this town. You talk about Alexandria, you're talking about Bill and Gloria Gaither. Let's do it again. I'm willing. Okay. Thank you for joining me for this episode of More Than the Music. For details on the Gaither Vocal Band tour dates, the latest Gaither music releases, and much more, visit us online at gaither.com. This is Bill Gaither signing off until the next edition of More Than the Music. Thank you.